G'day ladies and gentlemen, Australian expats, welcome to another season and another episode of Expat Chat, episode 109, and as always, I'm joined with my co-host, Managing Director of the EMEA region, Europe, Middle East and Africa region, Brett Evans, who is currently in the desert, which he said is quite cold at the moment, which I'm a bit surprised. How are you going, Brett? Right, uh, yeah, it is a bit chilly, and g'day everyone, and uh, welcome to 2024, and I think this is season six um, in terms of uh, how many seasons we've been going for. So got a few episodes under the belt and uh, a lot of topics to cover and no doubt many more to come in uh, 2024. You've got um, a non-election year budget coming up in May, so that's always a, a frisky time of year. And uh, yeah. uh, non-residency changes, you know, geopolitical events, you know, there's never a shortage of things to talk about. But obviously no. today we thought we'd... Um, in our uh, Facebook group, I think it's close mm. to 3,000 members now, 2,800 members. You know, we yeah. put up every month, give us your problems you're trying to solve, your, your questions for the episode. And we thought in this That's episode, right. let's just dedicate the whole episode to answering those questions, giving a bit of uh, context, feedback, and um, just helping good folks make good decisions. That's right. And I mean, a quick shout out to the Facebook group, the members in there. You know, it's it's terrific and lovely to see just expats helping each other out, giving them feedback on their own experiences. You know, you've got someone that's in Dubai or Saudi giving their experience to someone that's in the UK or the US. It's just, it's outstanding. It's great. It's exactly what we want from that group as well. And if you've been living under a rock and you're on Facebook, type in Australian Expat Financial Forum, um, join up, and uh, we look forward to seeing you online. Absolutely, mate. And today, let's jump into that Q&A. But before we do so, I guess, quick disclaimer, throw it over to you, Brett. Mate, all the information we're going to have the pleasure of sharing with you good folks today should be treated as informational and educational purposes only. Do not construe this as personal financial advice. If you do need to get personal financial advice, reach out to a specialist like Atlas. Absolutely, mate. Now, let's jump in. A, a terrific question here, uh, and probably a common one that a lot of Australians uh, face when they do move overseas and they don't give it too much thought from David. Uh, he's living in Seattle, USA having some issues with accessing the ATO account online. So that's via MyGov. Um, there's been a couple of expats that have jumped to his aid about, I guess, saying that they've been able to get onto it, um, and it's by way of using that digital ID app in Australia. Um, you can download it on your phone, but essentially using digital AU ID to be able to get into the MyGov app. Brett, what's your experience like with using that now that you're in Dubai and you're not coming back? Mate, to me, the digital ID works for those folks who were in Australia when digital ID was started. Come but out. for an expat who's been overseas for longer than the, the chronology of that time frame, um, yep. that won't work either. And mm. the easiest way to do it, and, and essentially the, the biggest problem with folks who are experiencing is the one-time password and the, the authorization. So right. the best way to do it is actually to can your MyGov app application the your login start a fresh one and when you set it up you get to deselect the one-time password option uh, by doing that means you'll be able to link up your ato again and any other services through the government and do it that mm -hmm. way but it'll mean that yeah you, you'll be able to log in as opposed to not one thing we always say to folks who are about to move overseas if you're about to move overseas go into you know the uh, mygov app and deselect the um 
the one-time password option. You will need to get a one-time password to deselect the one-time password. So that's why you need to do it <laughs> while you're still having your uh, your Australian number. Because once you get overseas and you can that number, then um, you'll be locked out of that particular login or that account for good, and you'll have to create a new MyGov account to um, kick mm. it off again. Yeah, which can be frustrating because then you've got to link all the services again. I think probably the two most common are the ATO and Medicare. And, I mean, usually uh, you're having to use, you know, a previous notice of assessment to link the ATO system. Uh, and Medicare, uh, it's usually asking you just a couple of sort of, you know, really specific questions for yourself, you know, super number or old statement number or something like that, a reference number to be able to link it. But some good feedback and some good advice there. Jumping into the next question, actually next two questions, because there's actually the same theme here, and it's around Social Security versus the Australian Age Pension. So first one from Steve. Uh, Thanks, Brett, for the ad. Heading home for my daughter's wedding on Monday. I'll be there, Newcastle, for five weeks. I'm trying to find out if I can receive an Australian pension while living in the USA. I'm 62, and I'm about to get um, Social Security here in the USA, but not sure if I can get both. Um, I'm going to squash these questions together. Um, following on from that, Sam asked the question, Social Security versus Australian Age Pension, can you collect both while living in the US? How is it treated from a taxation perspective? How does the mean testing work for the Aussie pension? So some great questions. I might take this question or these questions. That's your um, region so- yeah, so, I mean, the age pension in Australia is very, very different to Social Security. In Australia, the age pension is means-tested. And what that means is that Centrelink uh, looks at your assets, and if your assets are over a certain level, base of your age of 67, then you're unable to obtain Social Security, or I guess Australian age pension, I should say. Um Certain assets are exempt from that kind of means testing, definitely the main residence, but then they take into account your savings, your personal use assets, they look at your superannuation, shares, investment properties, all those things. And if those assets are over a certain level, which isn't much, um, then you are unable to receive the age pension. And this includes overseas and foreign assets as well. You know, They're not hidden from these kind of tests when it comes to mean testing. You compare that to the US Social Security, which is not means tested. It's actually based on the minimum of 10 years worth of taxes paid into that system. And the amount that you receive on a monthly basis is based on the highest period, essentially, or highest amount of tax that you put into it. And then it's averaged out until you essentially pass away in the US, if that's the case, or when you pass away. Um, But it's based on what you actually kick into the system. It's not means tested. It's not based on, I guess, any assets or anything like that. So very different. In Australia, the age pension is based on your assets. If your assets are under a certain level, um, based on the means testing, then you'll get something. If they're over, you won't get anything versus Social Security in the US, which is based on the tax you paid into the system and then you're getting it back out. Um, when you look at the retirement ages in the US, 62 is technically the early, I suppose, retirement age and able to access Social Security. 67 is probably the most common, uh, 66, 67, depending on your date of birth. Um, and then, you know, pushing out you know, up to 70, uh, that's when obviously you can still access it. But I would, you know, to some of my clients, I'm not going to give a recommendation on the podcast today, but uh, one careful thing to be in mind is that if you're looking at accessing Social Security, say 65, and 
based on your retirement assets, you can push it back one or two more years. Just remember that those monthly payments that you receive, they get indexed in the United States. And the indexation factor is quite healthy. It's about 6.8%. So that's a really important one that if you can just hold off, definitely getting a bit more uh, juice out of the squeeze. Um, and usually it's more than inflation, which is great. Uh, so Social Security, Australian age pension, very different. Tax, tax treatment, which was a great question by Sam. Uh, so if I'm living in, in Australia and I'm receiving the US Social Security, I do not need to declare it in my Australian tax return. It is not taxable here in Australia. It is, however, taxable still in the US, but that is the one good thing which came out from our double taxation agreement between Australia and the US. US Social Security is not taxable here in Australia and vice versa. If I'm living in the US and somehow I'm able to access the age pension, uh, the age pension is not taxable in the US. And that's the reason why we have those bilateral agreements in place on top of the double taxation agreement. Um, but bear in mind, most expats that are in the US for a minimum of 10 years have kicked into the system a minimum of 40 quarters through their social security and their tax each calendar year should be entitled to some sort of social security when they reach that minimum preservation age in the US, which is technically 62, but full retirement benefits will be given at age 67 if you delay it until then. That's probably the best way that I can wrap up that question for today uh, or questions. We'll jump into the next question, um, which is a really good question, a uh, question here from Mark. Um, I live in the US and I've been a non-resident for 20 years. Um, I have an unimproved land in Queensland that I've had for 30 years. Wow. And if I sell it now, how is it taxed in Australia? So, I mean, it's unimproved land. He's owned it for 30 years. He's been a non-tax resident for 20 years. If I sell it now, how would it be taxed in Australia? Brett? Mate, essentially, it it's treated no differently to a place with a pile of bricks on it. You know, it's an investment That's property. It. So... Uh, Pre-2012, 8th of May 2012, you'll get a 50% discount on the CGT or the gain for that period. So obviously you need to get a backdated valuation back to the 8th of May 2012 as to what that land was worth. Acquisition price minus the 8th of May 2012 valuation, cut that mm -hmm. gain in half. You'll pay non-resident marginal tax rates on that. And then from the yep. 8th of May 2012 through to obviously disposal date, there'll be the, the full freight being leveraged on that as well too. Exactly right. Um, the, the only way that the gain might be brought down a tiny bit is if the accountant that you're using is able to assist you with any cost-based adjustments. Um, cost-based adjustments are usually holding costs. Um, we commonly see them uh, um, would be council rates, as an example. Um, land tax, if that is being applied to that vacant land, but that would be a pretty sizable piece of vacant land, if so. Um, and generally just those types of holding costs. I don't think you'd have probably too many, to be honest, um, depending on how you've purchased and owned the property, except for maybe a mortgage. So uh, that's just a cost-based element. Um, I believe it's three. Um, and that's something that might be able to I guess, bring down the capital gain a little bit. But I would say you're going to be paying a fair bit there in tax, uh, unfortunately, Mark. Um, Jack, can we talk about SMSFs for expats? Good question, Jack. Um, it's a really good topic. Um, Brett, kick it over to you. I think there's two, there's two, I guess, levels of interest here from existing Australian residents about to move overseas who have an SMSF and also yep. to the, those who are overseas looking to create one. 
So if you dribble yeah. the first one first, you're an Australian tax resident, you're about to move overseas, you've moved your Australian super into a self-managed super fund. Um, before we get too much further and lose folks here, you know if you have an SMSF. So people yeah. on, the, on the call, if they're going, oh, I wonder if I do have one, you will know if you do. If not, you'll have a standard industry or retail super fund. So, because it's actually something you go out and create um, like an entity. Yeah. So, when it comes to moving overseas, superannuation at a, a high level under the SIS Act, SIS Act, is agnostic to residency. However, there's a special carve out for self-managed super funds. And uh, the previous uh, friend, Scotty from marketing, was looking to remedy some of these situations, but obviously. We now know he's not only lost the uh, the prime ministership, but he's actually leaving the government. I saw the other day, so uh, yeah, going, back yeah, to, right. going back to marketing. And <laughs> what it means for for those folks out there is, in order for your self managed super fund to be compliant, you have to have both uh, pass a number of tests. And the two main tests that experts have to contend with is what called the active members test, which means you cannot contribute to that fund. And then the second one is what we call the central management control test, and that has to be in Australia. So the the central management control is the overarching ability to hire and fire, not giving your account and a power of attorney saying, off you go, do it for me, because he can't fire himself. This is that higher level again. This is that, uh, like, godlike, you know, sort of control um, on the fund. Now, if you are found out to be overseas Mm -hmm. and having central management control, you know, sort of like a puppet master telling someone back in Australia what to do, then in the first year you'll lose up to 40% of the balance. Not of the income, of the balance. So that's a huge, huge haircut. And then if you don't rectify that by year two, you lose up to 90% of the balance. So it escalates from there. So you don't want to be caught. Now, a lot of folks out there will do what's called rubber stamping. So they Mm -hmm. might have a... Um, individual trusteeship, they'll take themselves off that and put a brother or a sister or an uncle and auntie or you know, mum and dad uh, on there as a trustee, or they might have a corporate trusteeship. In that case, they'll be the directors and they'll resign as the directors and put someone else in place. Now, the biggest problem with that, and a lot of folks see that, and we see this a lot of the time, is unless that person has an economic interest in the self-managed super fund, then really it's not compliant. It's just you're doing that to try and get around the situation as opposed to yeah. addressing the problem itself. If you have a out-of-weight scenario, you know you might think, okay, what I'm going to do, I'm, gonna, I'm a single guy or girl, I'm going to go overseas, I'm going to combine my self-managed super fund with my brother or sister back in Australia, join the two together. If you've got 80% of the balance and they've got 20% of the balance and they've got all the control, once again, red flags will appear. The last thing you want to do is have to justify yourself to the to the ATO. And this is the ATO governance, by the way, folks. So we're not talking about some other government body that's a toothless tiger. The biggest problem we find is the ATO is on the warpath, not just for expats, but SMSS in general, in that they've been sold, uh, sold to them inappropriately. So what that means is people who maybe shouldn't have had self-managed one have one and the ato is actually calling trustees up and saying doing a test with them saying hey do you know what you've got do you know your responsibilities and so forth so it's not something you just jump out and do self-managed super funds are very good at holding physical assets 
yes. property, um, vintage cars, artwork, gold bullion, yeah, physical yep. things. Unless you're not holding those type of assets, if you're just holding shares and ETFs, go into a retail master rent. Do not do a self-managed fund because it just exposes you to so much subjective conjecture in terms of are you compliant or not. If mm -hmm. there's, I guarantee, you, if it's a grey space and it's on the fence, the ATA is going to rule against you and you're going to lose yep. almost half your balance. So if you can avoid it, if you're just looking to use an SMSF because you want more control, reach out to us. There's a lot of other compliant options and a lot of our clients mm -hmm. do it. You don't need to go down the route of an SMSF. And anyone who tells you otherwise clearly doesn't operate in space on a daily basis. No. And, it, I mean, uh, and you, you briefly touched on it, but even just the cost of running an SMSF for, uh, remember, you're having to do a tax return, much like audits. you have to do an individual tax return, audits. That alone can range from 2500 to, you know, 5500 depending on what you're actually doing. But then on top of that, you've got the investment costs as well, like, yeah, so they're just uh, they're not the ideal solution for expats. I know back in uh, when the budget was released, they did mention how they were going to create some flexibility there, but they've shut that down pretty quickly. That actually hasn't copped too much more news, to be honest, after they announced it. Um, so well, I think right. they've shelved that. You've got that temp uh, two-year temporary absence rule. So what that, mm. that rule says, if you move out of the country, you have two years to remedy the situation. If you breach that two-year period, you're done. They were mm. talking about changing that to five years, and they're also yeah. talking about removing the active members test. That's, That's right. all gone one way of the dodo. We know Labor doesn't like SMSFs because no. it goes against their 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 policies. So yeah. um, I don't think we'll that'll ever see the light of something light of the light of day again in terms of uh, those changes. And unless the libs get back in, it's um, I think it's done. Yeah, I agree. They've, uh, it'd be interesting to see what happens over the coming weeks and months because they're playing with those stage three tax cuts as we speak right now. Um, so see what else we come, comes out of that from a tax aspect, maybe residency changes uh, as we lead into the budget again. Um, another question, we'll, we'll, that was a really good one then, uh, from Rani, super contributions as a non-tax resident, is that still taxed at 15%? I mean, Another really good question, um, and I think we could bro both break this one down, Brett. I might start with um, non-concessional contributions and just give a bit of a uh, high-level understanding. So whenever you're looking to make a contribution to super, there's technically, we'll say two, but there's, there's more than two types. I'm not going to get into downsides or contributions and all those things today. Let's just break it down into the two classifications. There's what's called concessional and non-concessional contributions. I'm going to talk about non-concessional. I'll give it to Brett to talk about concessional. Non-concessional contributions are treated as after-tax contributions. So when they go into the super fund, they are not taxed at 15%. They increase your tax-free component within your superannuation fund. You have an annual cap of 110000 per financial year, or you can trigger what's called the bring-forward rule which allows you to put in $330,000, uh, which is triggering three years' worth. And then you need to wait until those three financial years are up, even though you did it only in one lump sum amount. And then you can start recontributing non-concessional contributions. They can be a really great way for returning expats or expats in general to add a very large amount to their super quickly because they haven't given their super much attention whilst they've been away.
And often super still becomes probably one of the main pillars, if not the main pillar, as part of an expat's retirement strategy because often they do return back to Australia to retire. So it does pay to give it some attention. I'm going to put pause there and I'm going to hand it over to Brett to talk about concessional contributions. Yeah, look, so like what James said, with a non-concessional contribution, it's after tax. So it's out of your own pocket. So you get paid a salary, the money goes in your bank account, you transfer that across into super, and that's why it's not taxed. Concessional is what we call pre-tax contributions, and sort of give an example that helps people frame in their minds how it works. When you lived in Australia, your employer made their, what's called their SG, their superannuation guarantee payments into super. So let's run an example of, I know it's changed, but just to keep numbers round, let's say yep. the SG rate was 10%. So 10% of your yep. salary goes into super. So let's say you earned a gross salary, including super, of 100000 Australian dollars. So what would happen is your employer would move $10,000 of the 100 into your super account. And that gets taxed at 15%. That's contributions tax. They may be asking, well, why are they taxing that? And the reason being is your accessible salary so what they calculate your marginal tax rate on isn't the 100000 anymore, it's 90000 So whatever amount gets contributed to super by way of a concessional contribution, a pre-tax contribution, discounts your accessible income. So now suddenly instead of paying marginal tax on 100000 you're actually paying marginal tax on 90000 The only time that a expat, well, there's probably three occasions that come to mind, um, should contribute to super as a concessional contribution as opposed to what James has talked about as non-concessional. Number one, you're running positive cash flow on a property in Australia, on a rental property in Australia. If you're running positive cash flow, let's say, for example, $20,000 a year, um, you'll pay 32.5% tax because there's no tax-free threshold and at the, mm -hmm. the non-resident non marginal tax rate. So instead of paying 6400 and whatever it is you know, in tax, you take that 20000 and move it across into super as a concessional contribution before the 30th of June. Instead of paying 32.5% tax, you're only paying 15% tax because you've reduced your assessable income down to zero by moving it across. Now, there is a limit of $27,500 every year that you can do, so you can't breach that limit except in one scenario, and that's the option number two. You can go back and do what's called a catch-up concessional allowance. So for those folks who have been overseas for a while, they've probably never contributed to super by mm. way of a concessional contribution. So they're probably yeah. thinking, why do I want to do that? Let's say, for example, you sold an investment property in Australia, and obviously there's a bit of capital gains tax there. Canberra thanks you, the ATA thanks you for your kind donation. But before mm. you give them too much, what you can do, you can go back up to five years and bundle together all of your allowances that are unused. So if you go back and look at the current limits, because they changed from 25 to 27 and a half, so there's a bit of a step, but it's about $150,000. You can take out of the proceeds of the sale of that property and put them into your super account and claim that tax deduction. So now yeah. let's look at let's look at that one hundred fifty thousand example. You would have paid thirty two and a half percent tax up until one hundred and twenty, and then thirty seven percent tax from one hundred twenty up to one hundred fifty. By putting it across into super, now suddenly you're only paying fifteen percent tax on the whole lot. 
Yes, it's stuck in a super. Super's like the mafia, once in, never out. But <laughs> as long as it maps to your financial plan and funding your retirement, you've just cut your tax rate over half and funded your super. So it is a good scenario. The third case when you do a concessional contribution is when you're in your later, later years, you've maxed out your non-concessionals, you've maxed everything out, everything to the bill, mm. and you really just want to pump money in there, and the 15% tax is a price you're willing to pay to be able to maximise your annual contributions into super. So yep. in a nutshell, that's concessional contributions. Yeah, I think, I think we covered it, ladies and gentlemen. Sure, know as much as us right now about contributing to your super fund. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Moving on to another question here from Sean or Seen. We'll say Sean. Hi, team. Currently in the UK and considering a move to the Middle East, we have a property in the UK which the accountant says we can rent and still claim the tax-free personal allowance as a non-resident. Now, that's referring to the UK tax side, not the Australian side. If I was to buy a property in Australia, could I claim the tax-free threshold? Thanks in advance and have a Merry Christmas. Okay. Uh, I'll take this one. So, and it's something that actually Brett pretty much talked about briefly then, talking about contributing to super. Um, When you are a non-resident for tax purposes of Australia, you do not have a tax-free threshold. You pay tax on the first net dollar at 32.5%, and that first tax tier is up to 120000 and then it goes up to 37%, and then up to 45%. So no, in Australia, if you are a non-resident of Australia and you have uh, rental income that's positively geared, then you'll be paying 32.5% on that. Uh, we don't have a tax-free threshold. When you return back to Australia and you return being a normal Australian tax resident, you will have a tax-free threshold. And right now, that's what they're talking about in the background in terms of stage three tax cuts back in Australia. They're looking at making some amendments there, some tweaks, uh, tax-free thresholds, including that one. But for those listening today, if you are a non-resident of Australia, you do not have a tax-free threshold. You pay tax on the first net dollar. I'll leave it at that and we'll move on. Uh, good question, long question here from an anonymous. Um, and I'm going to read it out. I'll try and paraphrase it a little bit um, as it's regarding CGT, uh, foreign resident, capital gains withholding, and property and tax. So uh, reaching out for some general direction here, I'm having trouble interpreting the capital gains withholding with a contract price less than 750000 Context, I'm an Australian currently living in Canada and I'm a resident of Canada for tax purposes. I hold Australian property of my uh, former main residence and an investment property. Um, just trying to paraphrase that one. If I sell the investment property for market value of around 650000 while I live in Canada, Will I have to do a foreign resident capital gains withholding question? And what are the other tax implications I might run into or should be aware of? Um, Question. So two questions there. Um, I I mean, it's a two-parter. Brett, did you want to talk about the foreign resident capital gains withholding tax? Yeah, look, that's essentially a tax that the government brought in, not so much the target expats, but foreign investors who were buying a lot of Australian property they sell the whole thing yeah. for a big gain, and then rather than paying tax, that is repatriated all the money back to back overseas. So That's originally right. it was one point two mil, I think, from memory, and essentially any property value greater that or transaction greater that, the government required the purchaser 
to hold on to a certain percentage of the proceeds and then you sort that out in the wash when you do your tax return, whether you owe more tax or less tax and they give you a refund or you need to pay some more. That's now been brought down to 750. So what that means for um, uh, this lady or gentleman, I can't remember who it was, um, essentially if they're on, if if there you go. Um, so it means that when it comes to the sale prices below the foreign resident capital gains withholding, um, there is no requirement for any withholding. So you can sell it. Now, obviously, on the other side, you've got the capital gains issue, mate, and I'll hand that over to you, and you can yep. uh, you can run through that one. That's right. So the, the second part was any other tax implications they should be aware of, and there are. It's an investment property. We don't know how much the property costs, so we don't know the capital gain in this instance. But if he is making a capital gain on an investment property, then it's important to be mindful that he will have to pay capital gains tax. The rate of tax will be at the non-resident rates, 32.5%, 37%, and then 45%. He will he will be able to, or she will be able to use um, the 50% CGD, CGT discount concession, sorry, up until the date that they left. In this instance, it would be very smart to get a market valuation as of that time in which they left Australia. That's a really good way to segregate that period of capital gain. It helps provide that demarcation line in the sand. Um, and then any period of capital gain that has accrued whilst being a non-resident, unable to, to actually claim the discount concession for that period. So there is a bit of workings in that tax calculation but all in all there definitely will be some other tax implications which is the cgt uh, and then paying it at the non-resident tax rates so that's a goodie um, but i think we've covered that one quite well moving on to a question from peter um, and this one is about super so given the tax agreement with the usa uh, so referring to the double taxation agreement there dta if you have rental income in australia and make a pre-tax super concessional contribution oh the timing of this question uh, which reduces your taxable income does the irs respect that or do you end up still having to pay them the difference oh it's a really good question um and i guess right now you know going back and looking at super and the irs it's always a a bit of a gray area but i do know that there is a tax agreement there where because you're technically still paying tax within the superannuation environment, which is that 15% tax that Brett just talked about previously, you still are able to use that as a tax credit in the US within your individual US tax return. I've seen US accountants use it. Um, so you're still getting the concession there, absolutely, and you're still getting the tax credit benefit there. Um, and another, I suppose, addendum to that is you are building up what we call US basis within your super fund. Because you've already paid tax on that component of contribution into the super, you're building up US basis where you shouldn't have to pay further tax on that very small amount from the rental income. That's US basis. That's what that refers to. Um, so technically, the concession and the benefit is still there. You are still going to get a foreign tax credit on the US side. Um, and it's a good little way to save tax on the Australian side. Uh, absolutely. So good question. A last question for today from Mark. Uh, property question. Um, properties in the air today. Uh, hi, everyone. I hope you're all well. Looking for some clarification and help around the CGT exemption rules. 
I'm trying to get an accurate understanding of the rules and myths. So this is going to be in regards to the main residence exemption. Um, I've owned a property in Melbourne since 2010. I moved overseas in 2019 and rented it out since I left, so four and a half years. I'm not intending to return to Australia for another five years, at which point I'll return and live in my house. Let's pause there. He said he's rented out um, since he left up until, say, now, four and a half years. He's not coming home for another five years, so he would have rented out in total nine and a half years, technically, by the time he gets home. Um, when he returns, he'll move back into it, and then he'll move back into it and then sell it roughly a year or two later. I'm wondering if I should stop renting prior to the six-year CGT exemption window, if it actually makes any difference given I will still be a non-resident for tax purposes. Um, that's probably a good part there uh, to pause for that question. So really good question. So if he continues to rent it out, he would have rented out for nine and a half years, which means he would have gone past a six-year uh, I suppose, temporary absence rule or that, that relief rule. Why don't we actually just give a quick overview of what that actually is, Brett? Essentially, a lot of folks don't realise this. If you are living in in a principal place residence in Australia and do move overseas, the general assumption is since the 1st of July 2020, all expats have lost access to the main resident exemption, which is not exactly true. Because what you can do is move back into that property resume being an Australian tax resident, which is the qualification to access the main resident exemption and re-engage that. So think of it bookending. You lived in it, you moved out, you're moving back into it. By bookending it, you either get access to a full or partial main resident exemption. Access to a full main resident exemption is if you move back in within that six-year period. A partial is when, let's say, you're overseas for 10 years, six of the 10 is not accessible, four of the 10 is. However, and this is where I think this question's going, when you stop renting it out before that six-year period starts, you know, you actually get indefinite main rent exemption. I'll let you run into this one now, mate. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So um, you're only using that six-year exemption period when you're renting it out. So that's the easiest way to look, and that's exactly what Brett just said. If, this, if you're coming to the end of the six years, you kick the tenants out and then you just leave it as is vacant, it's not for rent, then you're no longer renting out past the six years. So you're not accruing any additional time that is, I suppose, making up an amount that which would be taxable from a capital gain aspect. Uh, let me reframe that because I didn't frame that correctly um, very well then. If you kick the tenants out before six years and then the property stays vacant and then you come back to Australia and then you sell that property, assuming you're an Australian tax resident, you haven't purchased another main residence, then that sale would be tax-free because you had never rented out past the six-year period. That's it, full stop. Um, and, and I guess that's where he's getting at right now. Should I stop renting it out um, as I'm coming up to the, the six-year period? Uh, or I guess, should I keep renting out? And this is the second part of the question. Should I keep renting out uh, and what, how would the tax calculation look then? I suppose another caveat is if you were to sell this asset as a non-resident, remember, you're not entitled to the main residence exemption at all. That's really important. Whereas if you rent it out past six years and you are a, main, a, a resident, an Australian tax resident in the future, you will be entitled to the partial main residence exemption, which is exactly what Brett said before. So 
That's a really important one. But do you really want to miss out on four or five years worth of rental income just to keep it vacant? And I think, I guess, an important, um, and this is something Brett and I were talking about just before, and Brett really drilled down on it and said, well, you really need to run a cost-benefit analysis. You know, there's a few assumptions in that, but Brett, I'll kick it back over to you. Yeah, so, I mean, essentially on one side of the ledger, it's rental income coming in. The fact that he doesn't have to rent it out or he has the ability to make that choice, to me, tells me his mortgage is done. So mm. the rental income is just, you know, rental income. Um, obviously, yeah. net of any uh, council fees and those sort of things. But you need to put on that one side and, you know, as in how much that would be over a five-year period. And on the other side, what part you lose out on when it comes to um, any, obviously, tax benefits or all those sort of things in the selling process. So if you, you know, do a rough model of what you think your property is worth, work out what a rough, rough, you know, no one's ever perfect, but worst mm. case scenario, CGT liability would look like. And then from that, map the two together, bearing in mind you can use the concessional contribution, catch-up allowance and those sort of things as well to reduce that tax liability greater than six years. But mm. um, everyone's different. I mean, I've got clients who don't rent their property because they don't want the place to be experiencing too much wear and tear. Um, yeah. So that's a, that's a opportunity cost they're happy to look past. But it really comes back to that two side. Yes, you can do what he's proposing. Yes, you can, you know, sort of not rent it out and receive indefinite main resident exemption and move back into it at some point in time. But it comes down to obviously, as you and I always say, the Excel spreadsheet answer. You know, you're foregoing five years worth of rent at whatever rate that looks like versus mm. potentially paying tax. Um, at whatever that looks like in terms of an assumed rate of return. And then map the two together and, you know, he knows why he's considering that option. So yeah. um, overlay that with his decision-making matrix and go from there. That's right. And, I mean, you, there's a flow-on effect there as well. You know, you could take that a step further. It's like, oh, you could be missing out on five or six years' worth of income that you could be using to build other assets. You know, don't know how old this guy is, but assets yeah. say towards your retirement. It's just that's an op that's another opportunity cost that you're not, you know. Anyway, power power sacrificing. we're not talking one or two years either. It's it's a five year period to see time frame when it yeah. comes to getting a compounded rate of return. And you only need to, you know, an extreme example, but if you got a ten percent return every year for seven years, it'll be money. That's exactly right. Really good question, Mark. Hopefully we've addressed a few things there because there's definitely a few things in it. Um, but yes, definitely need to run a cost-benefit analysis. Um, that's actually our last question for today. We've actually drilled down on quite a few today, so that's great. I'll hand it back over to you, Brett. Hey, let's wrap it up. I think we've uh, monopolised our uh, listeners' ears and eyeballs for, for long enough. Um, yeah. Just remember, if you don't know about the financial, uh, the Facebook group, Expat, um, Australian Expat Financial Forum, Google it on, uh, on, the, on the Facebook or even go through Google. It pops up that way as well too. Mm -hmm. um, jump in, you'll find there's just a sea of Aussies dealing with the same issues that you're dealing with in terms of how to make smart decisions and we're in there obviously providing guidance and feedback where we can. So, mate, let's wrap it up there. Um, yep. Thank you once again. Happy New Year and uh, looking forward to uh, being of service to everyone in 2024. Once again, I'm like a broken record. The only thing we ask for in repayment for this episode and many more is just the rating and review please guys you know yeah. it means the world to us uh we do watch it and we know when people do it because then we see our audience start to build out so um, yeah that's right through your 
you know, kind ratings uh, that were able to expand the show and reach more Australian expats and help them make more smarter decisions. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you on the next episode. Let's have a good year. Cheers. Thanks, guys.